please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 24 through 6. Please read all three verses with me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Sacramento. We're grateful that you can be with us. If you're joining us on the live stream, or if you've, uh, if you've made your way to the tent here in the parking lot, we're, we're grateful to be together in the way that we can. And um, as has already been mentioned, we're, we're sort of in the opening uh, weekends of a new sermon series that we are calling uh, Ten Words to Live By. The Azaret HaDevarim, that's how the, the Old Testament Hebrew says, uh, that's how it talks about this passage. The ten, what we know as the Ten Commandments, the Hebrew calls the Azaret HaDevarim, or the Ten Words. And uh, they appear in Exodus 20, which is what we just read from. They appear again in Deuteronomy 5. We know them as the Ten Commandments, but uh, we've... We've called our sermon series, 10 Words to Live By, and full disclosure, that, to that title is just a total ripoff of an excellent little book by a Bible teacher named Jen Wilkin. Her book is called 10 Words to Live By, and I would recommend it to you. It captures the, the gospel idea that these are more than just rules to guide your life but that these 10 words are intended by God in his word to give us life, that they're uh, to give us hope, to show us or point us towards what eternal life would look like if we were actually able to uh, live out God's design, which means uh, that they are words that point us towards Jesus, who is the only one uh, who has ever been able to do that. The only one who has ever been able to truly fulfill the law. And so uh, this morning, as we continue, 10 words to live by, three observations about the second word or the second commandments. Three observations this morning. What is idolatry? Carving an image of God and contagious worship. What is idolatry, carving an image of God, and contagious worship? On its face, when we read the second commandment, uh, it seems pretty obvious enough, simple enough to follow, uh, if not a little bit primitive to our sort of uh, 
to our sort of perception, particularly for those of us who live in a modern or postmodern Western civilization. Very few of us know someone, uh, very few of us know uh, that people that we know have anything like what we're imagining when we think of a carved image or an idol. Uh, little clay or wood or metal statues, a totem pole someplace that uh, has carvings of creatures or of uh, ancestors or, or mythic gods which people would bow down to. Maybe you've seen something that approaches that uh, hidden away in the corner of a Thai restaurant or something like that. But in our perception, there is just not a lot of idols around or people making sacrifices to statues. And so it would seem that it's easy, easy not to worship graven images. At this point in the book of Exodus, um, the Hebrews are gathering at Mount Sinai. They have been rescued from Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. They, they lived in Egypt and, e and the Egyptians worshipped all kinds of idols. They were surrounded by images that people worshipped. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River which they named Osiris and, um, and worshipped Osiris as the bloodstream of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped Heket, the frog goddess of fertility. The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh himself, who set himself up as the embodiment of Ra, the sun god who brought light to Egypt. And the story that we read as we were preaching through Exodus uh, some months before Christmas, the story that we read was that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the Lord, has just laid bare all of these images, all of these idols of Egypt with a series of 10 plagues, each of which seems to be a direct confrontation to one of the idols of the Egyptians. Uh, Yahweh brings and turns the Nile River to blood, literally. He the, the, uh, Egypt is overrun with frogs. If, uh, if you worship a frog and you, um, and you feel like you shouldn't kill one, try walking down the street covered with frogs. He brings darkness on a land that Pharaoh says he, that Pharaoh says he provides light for. And so, in a way, Yahweh has made it clear, not only is he greater than each of these idols that is worshipped in Egypt, but in fact, uh, they're not gods at all. He has tried to make clear that these idols are just empty images. They have no power. They don't exist. They're simply, in one way, representations of the way that the Egyptian people have come to worship things that, as Exodus chapter 20 says, are in heaven above and on the earth beneath and in the water below. They have made images to bow down to. New Testament believers were familiar with idolatry as well. You can read in Acts 17, and it describes there that... Uh, New Christians, the first generation of Christians, were surrounded by idols. There in Athens, we, we hear that, they were, that Paul was surrounded by the images of the gods of the Roman pantheon. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Ares, the god of war. Artemis, the goddess of wealth. But we don't live in a world like that anymore. So we don't have to 
worry about idol worship, do we? We may not use a name like Aphrodite, but there are people in our culture, young women and men, consumed with an image of beauty that they have been told is perfect. It drives them to depression or eating disorders or obsession or uh, spending millions and millions on cosmetics and cosmetic surgery, but we don't worship a god called Aphrodite. We don't use, uh, we don't build temples to Artemis, the god of wealth, by name, but we most certainly erect monuments in our culture. We call them skyscrapers and uh, shopping gallerias and auto malls, but they are monuments to wealth and consumerism and prosperity. What is idolatry? According uh, to the 17th century philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, it's taking any joy of the world and building your entire life around it. Whether it is the life-giving water of the Nile River in Egypt, the warmth of the sun, the enjoyment of beauty or the provision of wealth, all good things in themselves. Uh, idols are not always bad things, but even good things that we have made into ultimate things in our life uh, can be destructive. According to preacher Tim Keller, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that has become so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, you fear that your life would hardly be worth living. Last week, Daniel introduced us to the Ten Commandments and the first word, or the first commandment, we read, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, these are words that God spoke to the Hebrew people for whom he has just proven that there are no other gods. So he's just said, don't have any other gods before me, but he's just laid out ten plagues to prove that there's actually only one God. There is no other gods. And so what does that mean? How is it that he's saying, have no other gods before me, when in fact no other gods exist? Uh, the second word is something of an answer to that question. The question, uh, what do you mean no other gods? And he says, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them and serve them. Maybe it's easier uh, for us to see. Uh, maybe it's easy to see when someone's addiction has become idolatry or when someone's career is the only thing that they think makes their life worth living. Maybe we can identify when we see someone willing to sacrifice family and relationships for wealth and power, but any, this says anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below, anything in God's creation, good or sinister, can become an idol. The Bible describes our hearts as idol factories. We're really good at choosing something and then building our life around it. We're tempted to live for romantic love or the perfect mate. We're tempted to live for our children's security. 
want to build our life around something and our culture holds up the hope of a future where technology has solved everything or our country's military might or an endlessly growing and prosperous economy. Some of us will struggle with deifying personal freedom, others with self-discovery, and we'll form groups and make initiatives and build political parties and build our hopes and our plans and our ideologies around these things. My friends, we are surrounded by idols. We're as surrounded today as the Hebrews ever were in Egypt, and we can see the, ra- the, the devastating ramifications in the same way. Every time we read the story of a wealthy businessman taking their own life in the midst of a financial crisis, or a wife or husband willing to sacrifice their family for a better lover, or a life ruined by gambling debts and all the lies that have been used to cover it up. Just some examples of the fact that we can see evidence of something that someone sought to give them what only God could give them in their life, purpose and meaning and fulfillment. How do we discover the idols of our own hearts? Well, what is it that you lose sleep over? What treasure or relationship or opportunity or position is so important that you find yourself considering using dishonest ways to protect it? What threat causes you anxiety and angst? It may not be as simple as you think. I spent the first almost decade of my ministry career struggling on and off with depression and anxiety. Sometimes so debilitating that I would call in sick and miss important gatherings or teaching opportunities that I was in charge of. I became paralyzed with fear of failure, overwhelmed by the possibility that I might appear incompetent. And I was insatiable for I was insatiable in my need for other people's affirmation, and I'd become overcome with the fact that uh, I might not get these things. Or afterwards, after teaching, uh, just desperate to hear that I had done well. I stood in front of a youth group and taught them that Jesus was the only way, but success and competence and people's esteem were my God's. Anything that has become so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Keller's words. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, anything in the likeness of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them and serve them. We are surrounded by idolatry, and our hearts are idol factories. Second thought, carving an image of God. During college, I was studying youth ministry, and I had an internship at an inner-city youth uh, center called the Hospitality House in North Minneapolis. And it was during that internship, uh, while I was visiting the church of one of our student leaders, that I encountered something for the first time that really knocked me for a loop. As I walked into the lobby above the welcome table in this young man's church was a large portrait of black Jesus. 
it had never occurred to me. It had never occurred to me before that the picture of Jesus that I had in my mind was a white guy with a brown beard wearing a white robe with a blue sash. <laughs> this is actually uh, gets to the second thrust of uh, the second commandment. There's another emphasis uh, that exists in the grammar of the second commandment. You see, the second, the second word prohibits the Israelites from worshiping anything less than God, any lesser gods that appear in the image of something in heaven or earth or in the water, um, and representing them with images. But it's also talking about making images that represent God. The moment we choose a visible image to represent our all-powerful, invisible God, we have chosen a representative that is less than God. This is actually what the Israelites were doing in the famous story of the golden calf. Well, as we're reading in Exodus 20 about God giving Moses 10 commandments, we can read uh, that as he's gone up on Mount Sinai, the people get restless. They haven't seen him in a long time. And it says uh, in Exodus 32 that Aaron, Moses' brother, made for them an image, a golden calf. And in Exodus 32, 5, he says to them, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It seems... It sounds like Aaron is suggesting to them that this calf represents Yahweh, the God that has brought them out of slavery. Let's make something to represent God who saved us and worship it. But the problem is, and to quote that book, uh, 10 Words from Jen Wilkin, she says, the calf is small, but God is immense. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It's blind and deaf and mute, but God sees and he hears and he speaks. The moment we uh, create an image, we've limited uh, God. We're, 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 we're worshiping something that is less than God. The problem with creating an image of God to worship is not only uh, that by choosing an image, we automatically limit him, but when we do so, we also edit him. It is our tendency to choose the attributes that we like, the characteristics that we understand, the parts of, uh, the parts, uh, that, uh, the parts of God's character that our culture uh, and this moment in history values and esteems and edit out the parts that make us uncomfortable, edit out the parts of God's character that cross our wills or his attributes that we can't explain. We get rid of all the mystery, all of the commitments that he's committed to that we don't want to commit ourselves to. And so inevitably, uh, when we create an image of God, we create an image that looks like us. Enter white Jesus. Enter black Jesus, for that matter. The whole irony, the irony of the whole thing is that while we seem hardwired in our hearts to reimagine God, to re-image God after our own image, the scripture tells us that we were actually created for the exact opposite. It tells us that we were created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
One of the most important applications of the second commandment is to realize that we were designed to look more and more like the image of our creator, the God who is, not to create a God that looks like us. If we are interesting if we are interested in worshiping the God who actually is, then the invitation is to get to know him in the way that he has revealed himself, not in the ways that we want to imagine that he is. And he has revealed himself. He has given us his word, the scripture, shows us his character, and he has sent us his son, his son. And in Jesus, we get a picture of who God is. The scriptures apparently were not interested in telling us Jesus' skin color. We can guess, and that's okay. But the scriptures were interested in telling us about how we lived, how we loved, how we kept the law, how he died in our place, and how he rose again because he was the Son of God. It says that while, the scriptures say that while every one of us, every person who has ever lived, every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve in history has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. That's Romans chapter one. While we did that, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. No one has fulfilled the call to perfectly bear the image of God except Jesus. No one's been able to fulfill the first word, let alone the second word, let alone whatever Daniel's going to talk about next week, except Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And the invitation is that while we fall short by God's grace, you and I are invited to follow him, invited to put our faith in him, believing that by his death in our place and his resurrection, he's made it possible for us to begin to put to death our own idolatries, to die more and more to sin and live more and more to Christ. By his power, we can turn from the things that have broken promises to us when we've built our life around them. The things that have only given us anxiety and then fear and guilt and shame and start building our lives around the God who is and know who he is as we look at the person of Jesus. Last week, Daniel said that behind every thou shalt not in the Ten Commandments, there is a thou shalt. And when we look at the second commandment and it says, thou shalt not fashion a carved image to worship, it is because God has promised instead by his spirit to fashion us after his own image. As God frees us from sin and as his grace gives us ability to obey his word, we learn to reject those things that don't reflect his character. We participate in his spirit and in that process he whittles away in us all of those things that... Uh, that look like us and reveals more and more an image that looks like Christ. Thou shalt be refashioned after my image. One more reflection, contagious worship. Second commandment, second commandment's longer than the first. 
and longer than most of the other commandments because it comes with this warning and promise. It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Essentially, God is making clear that worship uh, is, has momentum, worship is momentous, and it's contagious. There's an inertia to what we worship that tends to continue in the same direction and regenerate itself unless we change course. What that means is, is that we will inherit the idols of our parents and we will pass along those idols to our children and to the next generation without even really knowing it. Our workaholism, our codependency, our addiction, our consumerism, our prejudices are the air that our children breathe. But the good news is, is that the same is true for repentance and forgiveness and humility and the pursuit of Jesus. We can teach our children what it means to destroy idols by repenting and, and putting those things to death in front of them and then telling them the story of what God has done. Did you notice that that's essentially what we were talking about when we were baptizing Abby and Hattie and Jack this morning and all those other kids, the 13 other kids that have gone before? When we've celebrated uh, with their families, what we have said is that we're committing as a church and we're inviting, to, we're inviting you to support these families to commit to passing on a legacy of pursuing Jesus, creating momentum and inertia towards repentance and forgiveness and faithfulness to Christ so that that's the air that they breathe as a child that lives in this community. Deuteronomy Chapter uh, 6, the second time that the Ten Commandments appear in the Scripture, says it this way. It says, um, the words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets to your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The invitation is to saturate our lives with grace. To not be too proud to repent. To be people who uh, nakedly follow Jesus even when it means confessing our sin and turning to him again and again. To saturate our lives with grace because the Lord shows steadfast love to thousands of generations who love him and keep his commandments.